In this season of Lent, we will repeatedly hear words like repentance and confession and lament and sin. Many of us, as Pastor Howard mentioned earlier, have started reading this book, Low Anthropology. It's a book which suggests practicing a lower view of humanity, the practice of recognizing our weaknesses as places of hope, as places of grace, of opportunity. Well, the passage of scripture that we turn to this morning is a story about Jesus, an accused woman of sin, and her accusers. This is a story about sin for us, fellow sinners. Before I turn to these words, let us first turn to God in prayer, because of course I'm one of the biggest sinners there is. Let us pray. God of grace and God of glory, you are true perfection, holiness, sacredness, sinless. I pray, Lord, that your spirit of perfection and holiness might be inspired in the moment as we hear your words read and proclaimed. May they not, be my, may, may they not come from my voice, O oh Lord, but might they be inspired by your voice, the voice of your goodness, the voice of your spirit. Lord, I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we turn now to the Gospel according to John, chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. Listen now for the Word of God. While Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, commands us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with this woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So sin. We've had all this beautiful, glorious moments of baptism, but I'm going to bring us down a little bit. Sin. This is a word that we use every time we come together for worship, confessing our sins. The church, universal, has used this word, or rather a variation of what this word represents, countless times over millennia. 
For better or worse, our human tendency tends to be to focus on what we've done wrong, our sins, so we can then fix it. We find a problem, we seek a solution. And in Scripture, it seems that there's this point to be good, to follow all the laws of God, to work towards righteousness. So what is sin? Sin has a lot of different definitions based on all these different words that are used throughout Scripture to talk about it. Sin is defined as missing the target. Sin is defined as a failure, a deviation from what is good and right. Sin is to be godless, ruthlessly violate the holy. Sin means to be disobedient, to revolt or rebel against God. Now, this actual word sin, spelled S-I-N, it's not found anywhere in the Bible. Sin is actually a derivation from an old English word that was first used to refer to religious offenses. All these different things that Scripture talks about. So when we read the Bible, we use this word sin to signal all these different definitions, to signal not just an act of sin against God, but we, the word sin is used to signal the very core of the human condition. In the Old Testament, writers will talk about someone's heart. Now, this wasn't meant to talk about someone's feelings or emotions. To speak of one's heart is to speak of the very depth of one's existence. To speak of one's heart is to speak of their very soul, not just something they feel. Well, Scripture talks about the heart and how sin resides in the heart. Sin, it seems, is a part of our very makeup, our very soul, our very existence. Sin, it seems, is inescapable. We are conditioned to sin, every single one of us. Well, many of us have started reading this book, Low Anthropology, and sin is a well-used theme throughout the book. I appreciate how David Zoll, the author, has this one little section devoted to speaking about what sin is not. So let's be clear. Sin is not simply breaking the rules, being naughty, as he says. Sin is not simply making a mistake. One of those, as Britney Spears might say, a oops, I did it again moment. Sin is not, as Zal says, some sinful dessert that's not part of our Lenten diet. Sin is not the never-ending list of offenses that we might have grown up with in our homes or even our churches when we've been warned God is watching, God is listening when you say that cuss word or drink that beer. Narrowing the definition of sin down to the things that we're just not comfortable with is a lacking definition. Now, of course, don't get me wrong, the mistakes that we make can be wrong, and they can hurt deeply. But they only scratch the surface of what true sin entails. So with this lacking definition of sin, what sin is not, let's go back to this story. 
We have this story about Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees and an accused woman all converging on the temple grounds. So the story is situated around this place, the temple, where God's actual presence was assumed. The place where teaching and learning occurred. But as we see here, also the place where judgment and accusations are addressed. There is a need for justice and adjudication. The desire to keep order was important at this time, just as it is today. But there is something else at play here. The conflict is addressed in the first half of the story. The scribes bring in a woman who has been accused of adultery, an act not just frowned upon, but prohibited by Jewish law, punishable by death. Now this is a suspicious situation at best. Let me tell you why. According to Mosaic law that they bring into the conversation, they must provide witnesses to this offense. There are none. And the man, the other half, of course, to the adulterous act, he has to be present, but he's not. So it would seem these religious leaders, they're not really concerned about a law being broken or a sin being committed. Rather, they seem to be trying to find a way to reveal Jesus as a rule breaker, as a sinner. Well, Jesus, in good old Jesus fashion, refuses to play along. Instead of getting bogged down in the accusation going back and forth, he simply asks them, after he draws on the ground a little bit, straightens up, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw that stone at her. You see, Jesus is seeking to get at the heart of this problem. It's telling the word that he uses for the person without sin. It's translated to me not just someone who doesn't sin, but someone who has the ability to never sin. Well, these religious leaders know what that means. So they all, one by one, starting with the oldest, walk away. Even they know it's not possible to not sin. Jesus pushes this human discomfort and vulnerable judgment aside and reminds us that sin runs deeper. So what is sin? We've talked about what it's not. When the majority of people in the word hear the word sin, they have a conception of immoral actions or thoughts, things that we do that go against God. I love this quote that Zal includes in his book from his brother Simeon, who was a professor of religion. Uh, Simeon says this, When modern people hear the word sin, I think what they actually hear me saying is something like, it is right to judge people for their flaws rather than having compassion on them. In a way, you could say that my students don't like the idea of sin because it sounds immoral to them. This view of sin 
It sits well with how the religious leaders treat this woman that's accused of adultery. They seem more concerned with the, the prosecution, the con condemnation. They seem more concerned with this control that they can have over another than with seeking the actual good. In other words, when someone hears the word sin, what they hear is one person condemning another. They don't hear hope, just judgment for the sake of judgment. Another way to talk about sin, a way I believe gets closer to this better definition of a sin, is a story about when I was young, and I've already shared this story with Howard and um, the people who were serving on the administration council that hired me about a year ago. So excuse me if you're hearing it over again. But I remember when I was young, probably four or five, I was riding in the car with my older brother. My mom was driving. Now, for some reason, we got on the topic of hell. Yeah, a four-year-old. Let's talk about hell. I'm not sure why. It was probably because I asked a question about it. Because, you see, there was no question that was off-limits in my household, especially if it was something concerning all those things that we learned in church every week, because we were in church every week. The three of us then started brainstorming, well, why is hell hell? Why is it this bad place? What is it? What makes it so bad? So we started throwing out ideas about what makes it so bad. Well, in hell, there's no ice cream. <gasps> there's no pizza. There's no playgrounds. <gasps> Even worse, there's no swimming pools. So our list of all of our favorite things that we love and assumed we wouldn't have in this awful place went on and on. But then all of a sudden, I stopped. I said, wait. In hell, God's not there. We all went silent for a minute. We thought, yeah. That's the worst thing, to be somewhere where God is not. It made us stop. To even consider a place where God can't get to you, where God is not present, it can be hurtful and hopeless. I think this is where a definition of sin starts to build a foundation, a place apart from God. Sin, as Zal puts it in this book, is rather a state of being. Sin is a view of our humanity in which we fall short of the good that is God. So to sin, then, is to be in a place, it's to a state of existence, a portion of us that is separated from God. Sin, then, is not necessarily something that we do, something that we own, something that we control. When we call out what we deem a sin, we are putting our place, ourselves, in a place of control. We are controlling the narrative of who is good and who is bad, who is right and who is wrong. And most of the time, the person calling out that sin sees themselves as the good one, as the one who is right. Now, to be clear, we are called over and over again through Scripture 
to speak out against injustice, oppression, ways of living that hurt our neighbors. However, this process of human judgment, of quantifying and qualifying the sin and the sinners before us, it requires a deeper and more visceral understanding of our imperfection, of our incompleteness, of that part of us that includes a sinful nature. As we seek to hold ourselves down on this same level of a sinful human condition as our fellow sinner next to us, the truth of grace and goodness can start to move its way into our relationships, to our communities. Because you see, we, we've got to accept that sin is this insidious reality that every single one of us face. The reality that none of us are perfect. All of us willingly choose the parts of life that God wished we didn't. Sin is that deep-seated part of us that lives in all of us where hate can thrive, where the will to do wrong is strong. Jesus didn't argue with the Pharisees and the scribes about the validity of their accusation. Rather, he went straight to the heart of those whom he loves, those whom he came to save. Jesus reminded these leaders of a practice of low anthropology. The practice of coming to terms with their weaknesses, but how through those weaknesses the goodness of God can shine even brighter. Jesus ends the part of this story finally, for the first time, speaking to the accused woman. No one has spoken to her yet. She has not spoken yet. Jesus then turns to her. Everyone has walked away, convicted of the truth that, of course, yes, they all sin, until only the woman is left standing before Jesus. I have this image because, you know, before he was on the ground drawing something in the sand, which a lot of scholars debate what that was, but at this point, he stands up. He's now eye to eye with this woman. Jesus says, where have they gone? Has no one condemned you? She says, no one, sir. He responds by saying, then neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. Now, this line confuses me. Of course, she's going to sin again. She's going to make mistakes. She will do the things that are contrary to a life focused on God and God's will for her. And Jesus knows that. And yet, he still says to not sin again. You see, my friends, the key to all this sin that we don't seem to have any control over, this missing the mark, failing, hurting others, the key is Jesus. Before meeting, this woman, before meeting Jesus, this woman was shamed. She was judged. She was threatened with execution. But now she has stood before Jesus. That broken part of her has been seen clearly. And she was loved anyway. And this is where a low anthropology, a view of our humanity which is lacking, brings so much hope. 
For wherever we are lacking, God fills us up. Wherever we just don't have the strength, God lifts us up. Wherever we feel hopeless and helpless, God surrounds us with the Spirit with sighs too deep for words. Jesus knows we're going to sin again. Yet we are already forgiven for it. We are already loved through it. And that, my fellow sinners, is good news. Amen.